song. Father, we love to sing like this. We love to remind our hearts of what a great and glorious and awesome God you are. You are not just the dispenser of the things that we desire. You are the very essence of joy and glory. And Father, we are here to praise you. Just knowing you is eternal life to us. And yet, Father, we must confess with the same breath that we are easily distracted away from you. And uh, Father, I pray that you would use this message to reset our hearts on Christ and the glory of our God in Christ. And be honored and glorified now, Father, by the preaching of this message and by our responses, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand together again and open your Bible to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and we will read verses 48 through 59. This will conclude John chapter 8 for us, and when I get back, we will uh, start in on John chapter 9, which is uh, perhaps the most beloved of all the narratives in the Gospel of John, the healing of the man born blind. And I can't wait to dive into that. We're going we're gonna to really enjoy that, I think. And so here we are at the end of John chapter 8, and this is what we read. John 8, beginning with verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. And the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced in my day, and he saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. My, oh my, what a text this is. Um, This morning I want to start by asking you a question. And you don't have to answer it out loud. That might be distracting. I assume since you're here sitting in church, you fit into one of two categories. One of two things is true about you. Either you consider yourself a Christian, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, or you're here because you're interested in learning more about what it means to follow Christ. And I want to speak to you specifically if you fall in the former category. If you are one who says, I am a Christian, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, this message is you. And here is my question. My question for you this morning is this. Why? Why are you a Christian? Why do you consider yourself a Christian? What I mean is, what motivates you to identify with Christ and his people? Or to make the question more concrete, what do you want? What do you want from God that you expect that he will give as a result of your being a Christian? What do you want? Why are you here? Why are you a Christian? Now, I know these sound like strange questions because we don't typically think that we're in this for ourselves, but the reality is that in some measure we are. There is self-interest even in true worship, and we want to enjoy, but that shouldn't be primary as we see. Um, This question of why we are Christian came out to me as I was studying this text. And this was a hard text. Chapter 8, chapter even 7, and and a portion of chapter 6 were 
were kind of difficult for me to preach and kind of to, to study them each week. And we got this constant conflict, this arguing, this, this, this hostility between Jesus and the Pharisees. And, you know, week after week, I think, what am I going to do with the next argument? How do I present this next conflict? Where in the world is all this conflict coming from? And, and what does it mean? And so as I was studying John chapter 8, all of this came to mind, this question of why you're a Christian, because it seems so strange to me that the Pharisees and the scribes were the leaders of the Jewish religion, and they were unshakably committed to Judaism, to the worship of the God of Judaism, and yet when God appeared to them, they rejected him. They rejected him. And it made me ask, wait a minute, if they're rejecting the God they say they worship, then what do they want from him? Why the game? What are they doing? How are they so self-deceived? Or maybe they're not deceived. Maybe they're just playing the game. Maybe they're deceiving others. But why the, the, the sacrifices and the prayers and the religion and the, and the costumes, the headdresses and the long robes and, the, and all the stuff? What do they want? Why do they practice Judaism? Well, one thing that seems apparent when you study this is whatever it was they wanted, it wasn't God. Because when God appeared, they rejected him. So, let's take our time with this passage and kind of go back to the conf element of it, because you can't preach this passage without talking about the conflict, because the whole thing is a conflict. It's a, it's a verbal duel between Jesus and these leaders. So if, if you're taking notes, this isn't much of an outline, but number one I have is why so much conflict? You know, or what is the source of the conflict? So if we're doing an exhaustive Bible study on this, and we're not, on the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, we could trace it back several chapters. It's been kind of going on here for a little while, but for time's sake, let's just limit our discussion of the conflict to chapter 8, where we are today, except to say that something significant took place back in chapter 1 that we need to remember. Because back in chapter 1, the beginning of the Gospel of John is what's called the prologue. It's just the first few verses. But John tells us something important. He tells us that God, who was the Word, that is, the creator of all that exists, that God became flesh, he became human, and he lived among men, and he offered himself to men, and those to whom he came rejected him, right? And so that's the prologue, that kind of sets us up for the entire book so that we know what's going to happen. Here is God in flesh coming to man, and they reject him. It's so important for us to know that. And it seems so obvious, but... It's going to become, I think, increasingly important as we go along here. And so that's what John tells us, and that's what we see here. So we're staying in chapter 8 now, chapter 8, verse 12. We see this in John chapter 8, verse 12. Look at it, if you would. Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, this is one of those statements that corresponds with the prologue of chapter 1. The Word became flesh. Here is the Word. Here is the incarnate Son of God saying, I am the light of the world. You're living in darkness. I'm offering to you light and safety and rescue. Follow me and I'll lead you into the light of day and into everlasting life. And, and they rejected him. But how did, how did they reject him? What did their rejection look like? Again, now we're talking about the conflict, and I want to lead you through the text that we read this morning that, that I'm preaching through, and just we don't have time to look at every verse, but let me, let me point out key verses here that show us this conflict. How did the people respond to this offer? Look at verse 13. Verse 13, the Pharisees rejected Jesus' testimony. Watch this. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What, what are they doing? Listen, we reject everything that you say about yourself. You came down from heaven. Your father is God and all of that. You're the savior of the world. We reject that. 
And our excuse for rejecting it is, is you can't just testify your, about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. We reject it. So, verse 19, they go on to deny that God was his father. Verse 19, so they were saying to him, where is your father? And, and the implicit connotation here is, listen, we don't know who your father is. By the way, this is a, this is a major theme here. Whose father is whose? Whose father is Jesus' father? Whose father is the Pharisee's father? That, that's what the, the essence of this argument is at this point in the text. Who's your father? Who's your father? Um, they denied that God was his father. Then look at verse 33. They declare that they don't need him. Whatever he's offering, they're not buying. Look at verse 33. They answered and said, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Listen, the freedom that you're offering, we don't want. We don't like you. We don't want you. We're not buying into this. And so they um, declare that they don't need him. Verse 48, and when all of the debate falls apart. I mean, first, it was technical. You don't have enough witnesses for your testimony to be valid, and we don't have any proof that your father is God. And so, and, and, and now that we're getting to the end, and Jesus is responding to them with such power and authority, they don't know what to do, so they resort to calling him names. And here we find that in verse 48. This is um, verse 38. I'm sorry, yes, verse 48. He says this, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay, so a little background on this, backstory. Samaritans, okay, let's, let's remember our Jewish history here. God led people out of Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, promised land for hundreds of years. Uh, God promised them when they got into the land, remember Mount Gerizim and Mount Nebo, they had stand on Mount Gerizim and pronounce all of the blessings that God had promised them if they obey him. And on Mount Nebo, they had the priests declare all of the curses that God promised if they rebelled against him. Well, they didn't obey him, so they got all the curses. And you remember, by the time we get to Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah is prophesying and saying, listen, you guys are in serious trouble. Remember all those curses? Well, they're coming because you have not obeyed. You're full of idolatry. You've rejected the Lord as your God. Babylon is coming. So Babylon comes. They take the people out to Babylon. Uh, Assyria had already come and taken the northern tribe and decimated it. Those people were just scattered. But now here we got a group of Jews, the big ones, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all of those guys and all their families. They're living in Babylon. Well, when the, when the Babylonians came and took those people, didn't get them all, left a bunch of Jews living in and around Jerusalem and Judea. And now what do they have? They're not a nation anymore. Temple's destroyed. Walls are torn down. They got nothing but r rubble. And, uh, and so what do they do? Well, they eke, out, they eke out a living. They find some way to survive. And they have children. And who are their children going to marry? Well, they married Gentiles. And this was the big rub. When Israel comes back out of captivity, they go back to the land and they find this group of people who for 70 years have been living there, intermarrying with Gentiles and having children. They're in the area called Samaria, and so they are labeled Samaritans. And Samaritan, the term Samaritan became kind of a, a code word for half-breed and we don't accept you. And they formed their own religion. They kind of used some of the Torah, some of the religious teachings, some of the Old Testament, mingled it with their own stuff, came up with their own priesthood and all of that stuff, and the Jews hated them. And the only thing you could call somebody probably that was worse than you're a Samaritan is you're demon-possessed. And they, they called Jesus both. Are we not right to say you're a Samaritan, the most hated? We hate you more than the Gentiles. And you're demon-possessed. Talk about an insult. And so that's the Pharisees' side of the argument. Here's, here's Jesus' response. Go back to verse 18. And so Jesus says, with 
a response that's geared toward them saying, you don't have the authority to testify about yourself. yourself. He says, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. I have plenty of testimony. You're just not willing to listen to God, who is my Father. And in verse 19, he said, look, there's a reason you don't know who my Father is. It's because you don't know him. Verse 19, so they were saying to him, where is your Father? And Jesus says, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Um, there's a reason there's a problem here is because you don't know God. If you knew God, you would know me. Verse 28. In essence, he's saying here in verse 28, one day you will know who I am, but I think the implication is here, at that point, it'll be too late for you. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things that are as the Father taught me. And then he says in verse 54, oh, verse uh, 42, again, we're talking about who is their father? And he says to them this, you claim that God is your father, but if God were your father, verse 42, you would love me. Because God loves me. And how do we know that? Look at verse 54. We know that because This God that you say is your God, verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glory myself, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. What's Jesus saying? Here's here's the greatest evidence that I am truly the Son of God. Your God glorifies me. That's what I believe in. But there are two statements in here that have infuriated the Jews more than any other. And the first is in verse 44. Remember remember I said the big deal here is who is their father, who is Jesus' father. And now Jesus is going to make that plain. Infuriating statement number one, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. Or the NIV, I think, correctly says, from his own language. He speaks his own language when he lies. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe in me. Why? Because your father is that liar. And genetically, you are what he is. You're a liar and a murderer. Your father is the devil. And, and that, that pretty much put them over the edge. And yet there was something else that turned their angry thoughts into homicidal thoughts. And that is verse 58. Verse 58 is the linchpin to the whole thing. And so here's Jesus saying... Um, Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, here it is, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It doesn't have the impact on us that it would have had on them. They would have immediately thought, Exodus 3.14, Moses, before the burning bush, God, when I get to Egypt, you know I don't want to go there. I'm not good at speaking. Love that whole dialogue there. It's so important. That dialogue is so important for your knowledge of God. And so when I get there, um, they're going to ask me, what God are you saying sent you? Who? Who should I say? Who should I say sent me? What is your name? And God said, this is my name. You tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am. Ego, a me, a gel, a me. I am what I am. 
I am that I am. They would have understood this intuitively. Listen, Jesus was not saying, um, I pre-existed Abraham. If he was just saying, I was alive before Abraham, he would have said, before Abraham was, I was. But he wanted to say something even more profound. Before Abraham was, I am. That God, the Lagos, who lives outside of time, he is me. I am your God. I mean, when I read this, I know about you, I don't want to keep preaching. I want to get on the floor. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, remember the God who brought you out of Egypt? It was me. And remember the God who brought you through the Red Sea? It was me. The God who met you on the mountain? The God who led you through the desert for 40 years? The God who brought you to the promised land? I am your God. I am the one that you claim to worship and you hate me. As it turns out, God is not what they really wanted. And so we go back to the question, why are you a Christian? My question to them is, why are you a Pharisee? Why are you a scribe? Why are you playing around with this religion? What is it that you don't, what is it that you want if you don't want God? I mean, all the pretense is there that you love God. If they don't want God, then what do they want? I have a biblical answer to that question. Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 6. And we'll look at a couple of places here, Matthew 6 and then later verse, uh, chapter 23. But Matthew chapter 6, he talks about the hypocrites, and he doesn't tell us yet who they are, but he will. Matthew 6 verse 2, and, and Jesus kind of gives us a, um, a little introduction here when he says in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. To be tells us motive here. To be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So verse 2. So when you give to the poor, do not sound the trumpet before you. I mean, why? Because people were doing that. Blowing the trumpet before they... I didn't hear anybody doing that when the offering plate was going today. And that's a good thing. Do not sound a trumpet before you. It's interesting, in, in, the, in the court of women, the, what they affectionately called the treasury, wasn't really the treasury, but it was where they collected the money. We talked about that last week. And they had all of these receptacles so people could drop their money in. And, and, the, tr- and, and the receptacles, uh, the part that, they had a box at the bottom, but the part that came up from the bottom that you drop your money into was shaped like a trumpet. And that's what they would do. They would come in and blow their trumpets, probably a shofar. And it's not a pretty sound. I remember asking a Messianic Jew who had a shofar and he blew it. And I guess before he blew it, I said, so do people like play this in songs and in unison? And he said, oh, no. You put a bunch of these together, it sounds like a herd of water buffalo running, you know, through mud and grass. And uh, he said, it just makes a loud noise. And, uh, but they would come and they blow their trumpet and then they would convert all their cash into temple coinage, as small a denomination of coinage as they could get, so it would make a bigger noise when they dumped it in their trumpet, in in the receptacle that was shaped like a trumpet. And so this is why he's saying, I think, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Now, he doesn't identify the hypocrites yet. As the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, They have their reward in full. That's an interesting phrase. What does that mean? It means this. They want to be noticed and respected by men, and so they pretend to be religious. They put on their religious garb, and they they do their religious stuff so that men will honor them. And so that works. If your goal is that men will honor you, this is one of the ways you can do that. But know this. You get what you wanted, and that's all your reward. You don't get anything from God. And then he goes on, verse 5. Um, and when you pray, okay, so he's given to the poor first, now he's dealing with prayer. 
When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. Now, we still don't know who they are. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. You wanted to impress men. You did that. And that's all the reward you get. And then verse 16. Whoever, uh, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Again, we don't know who they are yet. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. They got people to be impressed. If your goal is to impress people, then go ahead and impress people, but don't expect anything from God. You get your reward by people being impressed. Now turn to chapter 23 of Matthew. Matthew 23, a couple of verses here. And now we find out who these hypocrites are. And before Jesus was being a little bit cryptic, you know, who is a hypocrite? Just insert anybody that you think is hypocritical, uh, who happens to play a trumpet in the synagogue or at the temple and pours lots of money. You know, I'm not going to call him by name, but here now he goes after him. In, in chapter 23, he just goes after them. This is, section is called the eight woes. A woe, to, to say woe is, hasn't, doesn't have anything to do with slowing down a horse. It is a pronouncement of a curse. So Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, he declares, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Holy One. What did he do? Woe is me, for I am undone. He's pronouncing a curse on himself. Here's Jesus pronouncing a curse on the hypocrites, and they're apparently standing right in front of him. Look at verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say... Um, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, um, they're obligated. And look at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from the people, for you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And then verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You devour widows' houses. What's that mean? You take their money. You take their resources. So in 23.13, we have them, what is, what is it that they want from, from God or from the religion? They wanted power over people. First they wanted respect for men. Now they want power over people. Now they want their money. They want to get rich. And so all of these things they were doing, they were using their religion. In effect, they were using God to get what they wanted. In Mark 7, verse 6, it reads, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart far from me. You honor me with your lips. Not just your lips, but with, with the, the uniform that God designed for the priesthood, the headdress, all of that stuff, the temple ritual, the sacrifice. You honor me with your lips and with your clothing and with your, with your actions and yet your heart is far from me. You're not in this for me. And so you see, these religious people practiced Judaism not because they wanted God. They didn't want God. That wasn't what this is about. They didn't want God. This was a pretense because what they wanted was they wanted things that they thought could, they could get for themselves by associating with God. If we say we're God's representatives, then we can really get what we want. And so they did. And John Piper has so powerfully said, however, that God will not be used as currency for purchasing our idols. God will not be used as currency for purchasing our idols. The praise of men, wealth, feeling better, being accepted, being appreciated, 
That's what the conflict was all about. Number two, you know, the first question was, why all the conflict in here? Number two, what was Jesus really offering? What was Jesus really offering? Okay, let's step away from the conflict now. We see what's going on. We see what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing, the hypocrites. They're using God to get the praise of men and wealth and respect and honor and power, but they don't want God. And so what's Jesus doing here? I want to submit to you that what Jesus is offering the Jewish people was none other than himself, as opposed to his gifts. He was offering them himself. Yes, he was offering forgiveness of sins, the removal of guilt, the gift of peace, and 10,000 other things. But we can want all of those things, and we can want them for the wrong reason. It is possible, listen to me, everybody look up here for a second. It is possible to want the forgiveness of sins and not get forgiveness because you want it for the wrong reason. Forgiveness is precious for one final reason. It enables us to enjoy fellowship with God in Christ. To remove the guilt of our shame and our sin, that's a wonderful thing, but God gives it only to those who love him. That's why I say Jesus is offering himself, not his gifts. Consider this. Why do you want eternal life? Why do you want eternal life? You realize it's possible to want eternal life and miss it because you want it. That's the irony. Are you following me? You could want, for example, you could want eternal life for this reason. I don't want to go to hell. Well, that's good. I don't want to go to hell either. But that's not what God calls you to believe. That is not the essence of the gospel. You can escape hell by coming to me. You can have your sin uh, forgiven by coming to me. You can have your guilt resolved by coming to me. This is not what eternal life is about. This is not what eternal life is about. Now, I know some of you are thinking right now, this is hard to understand. Help me. Help me see the distinction between what you're saying the Bible is teaching and what I'm thinking right now. Because it sounds like it's awfully close. And maybe it is. But listen, you want to know what eternal life is? Why don't, we, why don't we have Jesus define eternal life for us? And in so doing, define the gospel. Okay? So if you're in, you're in Matthew. Let's go back to John. And if you flip back to John, you're probably flipping back to chapter 8. Let's flip a little to the right and go to chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in verse 3, he actually gives us a definition of eternal life. And so many of you know this, but it's good for us to be reminded every day. And it's no trouble, as Paul said, it's no trouble for me to remind you of these things. John chapter 17, verse 3. Herein is eternal life. Now, he's talking to God. This is eternal life, that they may know you, 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 and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, to know God, to know Christ, to know God in Christ. That is eternal life. This is the gospel. What I'm saying to you is, when you ask the question, what is the gospel, I'm not looking, at least in this context, for propositional truth. I'm looking, the answer is not propositional truth at this point. It is a person. It is Christ. It is God himself. God is the gospel. Christ is the gospel. When the gospel leads you to its designed end, you get Christ. And everything else is secondary. Now, let me illustrate this for you. I didn't have an illustration for this, and so I came up with this 
this, uh, this horrible illustration on the fly about apple pie. How many of you are interested in hearing that? Okay, I'm not going to tell you that. Um, <laughs> we probably have a recording of it. It's not worth listening to, but it was a shot. Brent came to me later and said, I got a better illustration for you. And I said, bless you, brother. <laughs> and you're going to bless him as well. Um, let's say this. I'm getting ready to leave for California. My son's getting married, okay? So let's go. Let's, uh, let's, let's just roll this out. And let's say you go to my son, Andrew, on Mount California this week, and you say, Andrew, tell me. This is a question that, kind of question Brent would ask. Andrew, tell me, what is it that you're looking forward to most about this wedding? Brent likes to ask questions that make you think. And what if Andrew responded by saying, are you kidding? All my friends are coming. I get to see all my friends and they've got this fabulous cake. And it's the greatest cake I've ever seen. And, it, and it, I've already had a sample, and it's so good. And, and the food, we're going to have steak, and we're going to have shrimp. And I get this really nice suit to wear. And I love this suit. And he never mentions the bride. <laughs> Why are you getting married? Now, I'm confident if you asked Andrew... What are you looking forward to most? He would say, Allie. Oh, is there a cake? <laughs> is there a night? Who cares about that? The only thing I care about is Allie. I love her. I can't go anywhere without thinking about her. She's life to me right now. She's my bride. She's going to be my wife. I'm not thinking about anything else. My friends are going to come because that's a formality. I hope to see them. That'll be great. If they're coming for the wedding, that's fine. I will enjoy being with them, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here because of the bride. I love her. You see the distinction? You see, beloved, eternal life is not the essence of the gospel. Forgiveness is not the essence of the gospel. The removal of guilt is not the essence of the gospel. Community and freedom from loneliness is not the essence of the gospel. And even freedom from enslaving sin is not the essence of the gospel. They are only means to that end. And what is the essence of the gospel? The essence, the substance of the gospel is Christ. It is the person of Christ. And so you look at the Christianity that you love so much and you ask yourself, what do I want from this? And here's what your answer should be. I am a Christian because I want Jesus. I've read his book and I'm so enthralled with Jesus. You know when David Brainerd you're getting a little extra that the uh, first service didn't get here. Um, when David Brainerd was ministering to the Indians in New Jersey, walking distance from my house where I grew up, and uh, if you read his, uh, David Brainerd's life and, and diary that was uh, um, put together by Jonathan Edwards back in the 1700s, 1740s, um, he would tell you about the Indians who were coming to Christ, the Great Awakening among the Delaware Indians and uh, the other Indians who were there. And uh, so many of them were coming to Christ. And when they would receive Christ, he said, I would preach, but I wasn't preaching judgment. I was, I was just preaching that, that they could have a relationship with God and that God loved them and, and they could have the forgiveness of sins and all of that, all of the components of propositional truth of the gospel. But they would come. He said they would come to me. And they would want to declare their faith in Jesus. And he said, I would ask them questions. And they would tell me, um, what I want is Christ. And if it is his will to send me to hell for eternity, then I will accept that and love him for it. Wow. You say, that sounds like there's something wrong with their theology. Yes, they needed to learn. But they got the real thing. They understood these Indians who didn't know anything. They got the real gospel. 
because what they got was Jesus. Jesus, you just tell me what to do. You just do anything with me. I'm yours. I am not my own. I love you. I want you. I want more of you. Does that sound familiar? That's what the Apostle Paul said. Remember? I don't know where he is here in my notes. Somewhere. But you remember, you can flip there. Philippians chapter 3. Go ahead, flip there. In chapter 1, he said... Um, for me to live is what? Say it out loud. For me to live is Christ. And to die, that's just gain. And then he says in chapter 3, For whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things but loss in view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus. Do you see eternal life there? This is eternal life, to know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Paul is saying, I, I've, I've accepted the loss of everything that I might know Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, scubala, garbage, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own which is derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and fellowship in his sufferings and being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead the central pillar in Paul's life was Christ that's why, Christian, that's why he gave up the Judaism that the Pharisees and scribes clung to. Um, being a Christian means many precious gifts. You get many precious gifts. You do. Freedom from the fear of death, for example. Go back to chapter 8. Jesus says in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What does it mean that you'll never see death? The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. You know what that means? In the beginning of the book of Hebrews, the author says, he describes unbelievers as those who were held captive all their lives by fear of death. Jesus, you come to him. He releases you from fear of death. He's the one who said to um, Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me now will never die. Never die. What is, what is death then? Death is just relocating. It's just relocating. What would your life be like if you had no fear? Had no fear. I mean, how many people would you have shared the gospel with by now? How many things would you have risked doing if you didn't have any fear? And here Jesus says, one of the things you get from me is fearlessness. You don't have to fear anything anymore because the ultimate thing that humans had to fear is death, and I've taken the sting of death away. That's a great gift, isn't it? But that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't you can be free from death. No. The gospel is do you want Christ? Do you want to be reconciled with God? You get God. Freedom from death. Or you get forgiveness of sins, 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Yes, that is, that is part of the gospel, but it is not the essence and core of the gospel. The essence and core of the gospel is Christ. You get fellowship and community. You get the promise of eternal reward. You get escape from the wrath of God in hell. You get spiritual gifts. You get comfort, assurance, boldness, meaning, purpose, not to mention love, joy, peace, and 10,000 other blessings. But none of those things is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. Woe to us if we present the gospel merely as a system for having one's sin forgiven and spiritual debt paid. 
We don't offer the world a system. That's what the Pharisees had and what every other religion on the planet has. No, we don't offer them a system. We offer them a what, class? A Savior. We offer them Christ. We offer them the promise of personal relationship with God. And this is the central pillar of Paul's life, as I said, out of Philippians. And so once again, I ask, Jesus offered himself. And Paul said, the only thing I live for is Christ. And dying is attractive to me because then I get to be with him. And so I ask you, why are you a Christian? What do you want from this Christianity? I want to conclude today by offering you a kind of a lengthy quote from Jonathan Edwards. And a couple of my boys are interested in, in ministry. They're, they're studying for the ministry. And one of the things I tell my boys is, um, listen, you, you just got to know this going in. Good reading does not make good preaching, and especially Edwards or Owen. You, you know, after about the first six words, everybody's lost. And the antidote for that is to print it in the bulletin, so I did. So you can follow along with me right there at the end, at the bottom of the notes section. Here's Edwards, and, and he can say this so much better than I. And so follow along with me. This is not Holy Scripture, but this helps us understand this. The redeemed have all their objective good in God himself. God himself is the great good which they are brought to, by which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of it by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. Christ is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and their treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament, their diadem, their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death and which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God, he is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem and is the river of, of the water of life that runs and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellency and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints and the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. They will enjoy the angels. They will enjoy one another. But that which they shall enjoy in angels or in each other or in anything else whatsoever that will yield them delight and happiness will be what will be seen of God in them. So today I want you to think of heaven. When you think of heaven... I want to ask you, you look forward to heaven? You look forward to heaven? Why? I mean, what cranks your shaft when it, when it comes to heaven? I mean, what really fires you up when you think about heaven? And some of you are going to, get, going to say, I've missed my dad all these years and I get to see him. Okay, well, that's good. And I want to meet Noah, find out what really happened, right? I want to meet Abraham. Um, I want to talk to Peter. I want to see the pearly gates. And really, are the streets gold? I mean, I'm really interested to see that. If you, in your mind, can love heaven without Christ, mm, that's a frightening place to be. Because there is no heaven without Christ. He is not an appendage. He is not the political leader who runs the whole thing that you never really see, except on TV. He is the reason we will be there. He is our joy. He is our everlasting treasure. He is life. 
That the blazing center of Christianity is not the promise of peace or the release of shame or banishment of loneliness or anything else. These are but small, tiny little planets that find their orbit around that magnificent, life-giving center of all things, namely Christ himself. So, practically speaking, when you read your Bible tomorrow morning or have family worship tonight, Will you be looking for God's gifts? Or will you primarily be looking for God in Christ? And when you hear the next sermon or meet for that next Bible study, will you be listening for the practical truth for living primarily? Or will you be primarily enthralled in the glory of God in Christ? And when you share the gospel this week, Will you tell people that all their problems can be resolved? Or that God has a wonderful plan for their life? Or will you tell them that they can be forgiven and reconciled so that they can know and love God? And when you pray, will the focus of your prayers be on healing of physical illness or financial distress? Or will the focus of your prayers be worship and adoration and the enjoyment of God? And when you think about and talk about your future hope in heaven, will you talk mostly about the loved ones who have gone before, the pearly gates, the new Jerusalem? Or will you think and talk mostly about your longing to see Christ? That's the gospel. My question is this morning. I assume since you're here, you claim to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. What I want to know is, why? What do you want to get out of it? What do you think you're going to get out of it? The only answer, I think, that pleases the Lord is this. First and foremost, I want Christ. I want Christ. Beloved, Christianity is not simply about accessing God's gifts, but rather it's about having the privilege of knowing God's Son. He is your God. He is the gospel. And he is for you if you will have him. Let's pray. Father, when I think about these things, as I said in the early service, I I feel like my tongue is made of wood and my mind is made of stone because I apprehend a little of your glory and I want to help your people see it and feel so inadequate. Words creak and groan under the weight of the magnificent glory of the person of Jesus Christ who is indescribable and yet described sufficiently in your word. I confess, Father, so often my heart and my eyes are looking for other things even when I come to your word. Help me, Father, reorient us. And may all the blessings of the gospel be secondary to us. May the primary thing be knowing Christ, glorying in him, relating to him, submitting to him, rejoicing in him, and finding him to be everything that you have promised to be for us in Jesus. Lord, these things we pray by the authority of Jesus' name.